what would happen if we had a worship service and nobody went home? Well, that's exactly what is happening out in this little town uh, called, let me look up here and make sure I get it right, in Wilmington, Kentucky, because there's a university there, a Christian university called Asbury University, where a couple of weeks ago, two Wednesdays ago, I guess it was, a, <clears throat> they had their regular you know, chapel that they have. I think they have chapel three times a week at Asbury University. And this one Wednesday, a pastor, local pastor came up and just challenged people to seek God and to be in God's love. And, you know, he wasn't a, a, a Billy Graham or, you know, just big, uh, fancy pastor, but he preached a, a, a solid message from the word of God about God's love. And then he challenged the, the students there just to be honest and seek God's love. And so some of them did. So after the service was over, 20 students stayed behind just to pray. They came to the altar, knelt before the altar. They began praying for each other. Somebody showed up with a guitar. This is minutes after the worship service is over. And they started singing and then sharing the microphone. And since that Wednesday, spontaneous worship has been going on 24-7. And uh, the last report I received was that that chapel, which is about like our chapel at Washtenaw uh, Jones uh, Performing Arts Center, about 1,500 people. It's been mostly full for all of this time. It spilled over into two other chapels uh, related to the seminary. There's a seminary nearby across the street for them. And then a local church has opened up their auditorium to take care of the overflow. People are coming from all over, from hours away. They're pilgrimaging like pilgrims, they've heard about this because now we're in the age of social media and there are just a lot of folks that know about this. So they're driving, they're flying in. Some are coming out of curiosity. Some are coming out of self-promotion. And I, I think they don't realize it. You know, nowadays we have influencers. Did you know that? What's your job? I'm an influencer, a media influencer. How do you get to be that? I, I don't know. You just, you get on the internet and you become famous for being famous. Never have real. I don't know how that works, but if there, there are a lot of Christian media influencers, good-hearted people that are coming to be a part of this, and uh, unfortunately, it's hard to do that without it appearing to be self-promotion. In fact, some other media-type folks, even the secular media, uh, have come in there. Some people have been driven by a political agenda, but mostly people are coming out of sincere, sincere desire just to be with God's people where God is working. And that's what revival is. This movement, by all accounts, and I've watched some of it on YouTube, watched a good bit of it on YouTube. It's gentle. It's unassuming. No one is pushing the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. No one is speaking in tongues. No one is drawing attention to themselves, which is another danger when revival breaks out. It can be, look at me, I'm so spiritual. Type of thing that doesn't seem to be happening here. Like I said a moment ago, that students are they're sharing the stage, they're giving testimonies. It's just whoever has a word from the Lord can get up and and say whatever they want to say. Now that's scary for some people. It's scary for me. It's scary for us Baptists. We don't we're not really good at that. Uh, <clears throat> one of our professors, Dr. Adam Jones, was kind of we were laughing together how we Baptists we like to be in control of things. Because if when the spirit really takes over, there's no telling what might happen. Because when the spirit is in control, we're not. Uh, 
we've also joked about how from the viewpoint of a university president, giving college students unlimited access to a microphone, it can be a very frightening thing. It's like a college professor's worst nightmare. Uh, but our own Dr. Ben Sells at Washington Baptist University was very much in support of this. Uh, his wife, uh, Lisa Sells, gave a testimony at a meeting the other night and spoke about this from the viewpoint of the president's office, how what she saw going on at uh, at um, Asbury, it involves a lot of people behind the scenes, like maintenance staff and people to keep toilet paper in the toilets. I never thought about that. A manifestation of the Holy Spirit is that somebody is taking care of the bathrooms and the toilets. But it's now, it's now this sweet spirit of revival has spread to other campuses, Cedarville and Campbellsville uh, and other places, and it's even come to Washita Baptist University and Henderson State University. Now, not, not to the extent that chapel just keeps going on and on and on, but students are getting together for Bible studies on both campuses, and they're watching this on social media, and they're praying that it will happen here, it will happen to us. I had the privilege of attending one of those meetings the other day, and I can just tell you, we went for an hour and 45 minutes, which is long for Baptists, and just enjoying the sweet fellowship of the Holy Spirit and talking about how good God it is and what it's like when God shows up and does his thing. Now, there also are some downsides to the Holy Spirit moving. We have one of our Washita grads, OBU grad named Sadie Sasser, who's there working on her master's, she was assigned to set up chapel the other day, and she, she showed up with her worship team to do a sound check a few minutes before chapel, and the sound check turned into a worship service, which for her was great, but a little convicting because it wasn't time for worship, it was time for a sound check. And then also, she, you know, their parking lots are full, people are lined up, it's hard to get into these chapels, and she got on social media and she said, I have to confess, I'm annoyed by this. But also, I realized that confession is part of this, which Sadie said, that's why she's doing this. And that God has convicted me that I need to be a good host for all these people who are coming from all over to just be a part of what God is doing. Now, beginning on Monday, there has been a, a decree, a decree a announcement issued from the president's office at at this university that, that they need to get back to business. They are a university and there are classes to attend and homework to do and things like that. And also, uh, and so the chapels will be closed from uh, early in the morning until about one o'clock. And then they'll open the chapels back up and Anybody can attend the, the revival. They want the revival to continue while they're doing business as usual, but there will be a restriction. Services will be restricted to those under 25 years old. So all of those who are not under, of us who are not under 25 years old, how does that make you feel? Don't go to Asbury. You won't be allowed in the worship services. This is mainly a student thing. It started with students and it will continue with students. But of course, we as adults, we want to be a part of that too, don't we? And that's why we want to spend, that's why I want to spend some time with you here just talking about what, what it means, what's going on there, what would happen 
if revival actually broke out here? What would happen if the Spirit really moved at Mount Zion Baptist Church? Well, this is not the first time that something like this has happened at Asbury. Asbury claims that there have been nine uh, incidences of the Holy Spirit moving in their history. Perhaps the one, the most famous one in our time was back in 1970. And many of us in this room were alive back in 1970. In fact, we were college students, some of us were, back in those days. And when a revival broke out at Asbury, that became a part of the Jesus movement. Have you ever heard of the Jesus movement? A, a movement that took place at a dark time in America's history. The Vietnam War was going on. There was turmoil. There was racial strife. And Time magazine came out with this famous article. You folks remember this? The God is Dead article. I, now, I, that actually was uh, back in 1966 when that happened. I was 13 years old at the time, didn't really understand what that was all about. But for most of my adult life, we have been talking about that evil article in Time magazine where they announced to the whole world that God was dead. So I did a little research on that. And I, I, I was surprised to realize that the title, the, the headlines of that magazine, which has become iconic, it, it helped to make uh, Time Magazine famous. It, it didn't really say God is dead. It asked a question. Is God dead? And there were some religious scholars, some people who identified as Christians, who raised the issue that maybe it's time for the God of Old Testament to be dead so that we can move forward and address the issues of the day with Jesus. So they were okay with Jesus, but they just didn't like the God of the Old Testament. Now, we don't have time to get into all that theology. You can't, we're not going there. You've got to have the God of the Old Testament. He's the God of the Bible. But the emphasis on Jesus Christ, that's, that's a good thing. But I'm bringing that up to you today to, to say that in the midst of that, with that article in the background, God, you know, is God dead? If you remember, those of you who were alive back then, there was good reason for people to doubt the existence of God. For many, it just didn't seem like God was alive. Or if he was, he didn't seem to care or wasn't able to do anything about the, the events that were happening during that day. And then the Jesus movement broke out. And, we began, and there were groups like Love Song saying, listen now to a love song. And, and <clears throat> reach out to your hand to your brother. Reach up to God. And revival took over our nation. And it was a very significant event that actually shaped our, our nation and provided those of us who knew Jesus, who were alive and seeking God at the time with reassurance that God is not dead, that in the darkest of times, God shows up and he does his thing. And God has been doing that for a long time. You can go back in, in the history of Christianity, go back to Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation where Martin Luther, who originally was, was a Catholic, a Roman Catholic priest, he, he looked at his own, he looked at Christian religion at that time and saw corruption and mismanagement and untruth in, with regards to scripture. Uh, but then the Bible came out in print and everyone was reading it for, uh, for themselves and, and just saying, hey, what, what we're hearing from the pulpit is not what we're seeing in scripture. And so Martin Luther comes along and he nails his 95 thesis to the wall and he says, let's fix this. Let's straighten this up. And a movement took place that revived 
Christianity and even revived Catholicism. There was a counter-reformation where the Catholic Church did their best to get their act together and come back to the principles of God's word. And, but then after a while, that went bad. And so a few years later, this is in the 1600s, there's this Lutheran pastor named Jacob, I call him Jacob Spinner. Dr. Carter pronounces it Jacob Spiner because he actually knows how to speak German. And, but there's this Lutheran pastor where he looked around and all he saw were the Lutherans and the Calvinists, which is a, another branch of Christians or theology back then. They were just fighting. Christians were fighting each other. And he decided to raise the spiritual level of his congregation with what was called cottage meetings. We would call them small groups or home Bible study, where folks would get together and talk about his sermons and they would pray. And it was spiritually uplifting. And it created this movement called the Pietist Movement. Now, by the way, if someone comes to up your day and says and calls you pious, that might not be a good thing. They might, in their minds, that might mean you're coming across as holier than thou. But the original pietism was very much a good thing. It was the movement of the Holy Spirit. It inspired a group of people called the Moravians, who were Christians who had been were being persecuted by other Christians who showed up on this estate in Germany that was owned by a man named Nick. Uh, Nicholas Zinzendorf and they they couldn't get along with each other until revival broke out after a communion service and they began praying and for 100 years they did the pray 24-7 thing somebody in that group was praying around the clock 24 hours a day 7 days a week for 100 years every time I read that uh, statistic I'm reminded of my younger days, and some of you remember this, remember when we actually had revivals and the ladies in the church would get a piece of poster board. Do you, do you ever do this? They get a poster board and they draw a clock on it. And they would put time slots on the clock and members of the church were supposed to sign up for one of those times. And the goal was to get there early so you could get a slot during the daytime unless you were a night person and could you know, sign up for that midnight, one, two, three o'clock in the morning. But someone always did. And so for a week or a couple of weeks leading up to a revival service, there would be people praying 24-7 around the clock. And then we stopped because, you know, that's a hard thing to do. The Moravians did it for 100 years. Now, they didn't have the poster board, but they prayed for 100 years. And they influenced people like Jonathan Edwards, we love to talk about Jonathan Edwards, this pastor up, <clears throat> up in the northeast part of the United States back in the uh, 1700s, before America was America, before the revolution, where he stood in front of his congregation and he read in a monotone voice from a manuscript, a sermon, a now famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And the the message, the main point in that sermon was that we are sinners on this earth and there's this giant pit of hell and we're hanging above that pit on a thread and God's sword of judgment is coming to slice that thread so we fall down into the pit and Edwards would, Edwards would look up from his sermon and he would notice there was a commotion going on people in the pews were grabbing onto the pews in front of them lest they fall into that giant pit of hell and Edwards, Edwards would try to calm him down let's don't get emotional now and then he'd go back and read this terrifying sermon that was the beginning of a revival that swept the United States. It was called the First Great Awakening, and it very much shaped who we are 
as citizens of the United States of America. There were people like John Wesley. He and his brother started Methodism. George Whitfield, this British Englishman who came to the United States, got on a horse and just started riding around to different places, mostly in the South. And he'd get out, he'd set up shop, and he'd start preaching. And people would come from all over and spend days and weeks, weeks listening to this man preach and others like him. Later, there were people like in the 1800s, people like Charles Finley and the revivalist who gave us our tradition of extending an invitation at the end of the worship service, continuing that revivalist type service, criticized. There were some excesses. There were some things that got a little bit out of hand, but it very much reminded people that when things are at their most, at their darkest, most difficult time, when things are bleak, God moves among his people because God is real and God is alive. One of my favorite revival, uh, stories of revival has to do with well, Wales over in what we now call Great Britain. Uh, the people, the Welsh people for years were just hard, tough coal miners living from day to day, having all kinds of ungodly activities in their lifestyle. And then revival broke out and people prayed and people praised the Lord and lives were changed. The long-term effects of the Welsh revival was that the policemen ran out of things to do. They sat around the police station twiddling their thumbs because there was no crime to speak of. God had changed the hearts and minds of these rough and tough uh, coal miners. Years ago, Uh, I was, Arthur and I were back, our family, we were back from Japan on a furlough, stateside assignment, and I was working on some, on my doctorate at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, getting started on it, and and we went to a Japanese uh, language church that was sponsored by a man who later became my friend, uh, uh, Bill, and I just went blank, Bill Walker, and Bill and Nancy were, they were pastor and pastor's wife of this Japanese service. And one evening, one Wednesday evening, there was a thunderstorm that came through Texas. And, you know, we, we know what that's like here in Arkansas. In Texas, those thunderstorms can be especially frightening. So this particular Wednesday night, no one showed up but me and Bill. Bill and I both left our wives and, and family behind. And Bill's grandfather, who was a man by the name of Charles Culpepper, and at first, I didn't, it didn't, I didn't figure out, it didn't click with me who he was. But as the three of us were just kind of sitting around having polite conversation, I came to realize that this was one of those missionaries who had been a missionary to China during the 1930s when a revival broke out in China called the Shantung Revival. And this man had been there. And I, I tried to get this man to open up and tell me, what was it like? to see God move back then, because I'd heard the stories, heard the stories of people being healed and pastors, Chinese pastors who weren't really Christians, they got saved. There was this one story of at the end of a revival service, the old-fashioned revival with a tent and wooden pews that they carried in from somewhere. At the end of one of these revival services, that when when the pastors and the missionaries were kind of tidying up and closing things down, Someone came to the missionaries who were gathered by the missionaries and pastors gathered by the the pulpit. And they said, there's a man back in the back and he's hiding under a pew and he won't leave. 
a Chinese man. And so they all went back to talk to this, this Chinese man. And they said, uh, please tell us, sir, what are you doing here? And his answer was, God is going to kill me. And they, they all said, no, no, God loves you. God doesn't want to kill you. Give your life to Jesus and live for him. And the man said, no, it's too late. God's going to kill me. Well, why would you say such a thing? He said, well, I came here as a spy for the Communist Party. They sent me here to take names to see who was attending this worship service. Instead, I had an encounter with God where God said that he is judging me and that he plans to take my life. Well, for several minutes, they pleaded with this man that that doesn't have to be the case. Confess your sins to God and give your life to him. But he wouldn't do it. And finally, after quite a bit of time, several hours, he finally got up and he left and he died within two weeks of natural causes. These are the kinds of things that happen when God moves. And some of them can be overwhelming and frightening because when the spirit moves, it can be out of our control. And so I met this man as I was talking to this man, Charles Culpepper. I knew he had been a part of that and I wanted him to tell me more. And finally, when he figured out that I was sincere and wanting to know what was going on, he began to open up to me and share some of the events uh, that happened during that time. And he shared what a glorious time it was to see God do amazing things and to feel him working among the missionaries and among the pastors and among the non-believers, bringing lost souls to him. But Mr. Culpepper shared with me a downside to that. He said those missionaries to China, himself included, they would come back to the United States and they would stand up in front of, stand in the pulpit at the very time when these revival songs that we just sang were being written and being sung. And the missionaries would say, this is what God is doing in China. And the people in the pews just looked at him with blank stares and eventually just turned him off, shut him off, didn't want to hear anymore. And so the missionaries themselves began to shut down. It was it, They realized that the, the church in the United States was not receptive to a testimony about what God was really doing in, in the world. And so that movement eventually went away. A side note, Mr. Culpepper, I learned later, after I'd, a year or two after I'd met him, he passed away finally. And I say finally, he was close to 90 when I met him. And he lived down in San Antonio with some family down there. And he became sick. They took him to the hospital. And the doctors decided that there was nothing they could do for them and instructed the family, uh, instructed the immediate family to call in the larger family, to call in his children who lived in various parts of the United States uh, because it was time for them to say their final goodbyes. And so they did. But by the time the family, the extended family, the, the spread out family showed up, he'd gotten better and he met him at the airport. <clears throat> and that happened two more times. That finally they, they didn't believe him when he said he was about to, to die. It was like the, the spirit was keeping him alive, demonstrating his power in his life, even in the face of death. But he is in heaven now. And I, but I'll never forget meeting this man who had experienced God at work firsthand. And so on and on it goes. You have uh, the revival that broke out at in Azusa in California. You have Dwight L. Moody and Billy Graham and even us, for many of us in this room who remember when we would have these revivals and we'd, we'd schedule it for a week 
And if it, if it went well, we'd extend it for another week. I remember as a preacher's kid, the revivalist would stay in our homes. I had great I was sad to see the revival preacher go because of uh, just what God, just the privilege of getting to know them. Well, what happens is that when times are dark, God always shows up and times are always dark. When we look at the history of revival, we can see that at the very, during the time when God was doing his thing, evil was also present as well. But the Christians were always encouraged and strengthened and emboldened to face whatever difficult times it were. Sometimes it was contrived. Some people try to manipulate revival, pretend they're, they're filled with the Spirit when they're really not. Sometimes there were excesses, but when revival is, uh, is real, it's like the wind is blowing. The Spirit of God is blowing, and times of refre uh, refreshing are coming from the Lord. So here's the question I started out with. What if that happened to us? What if a revival, the wind of, of God's Spirit, broke out among us so that after worship service, we didn't want to go home. But here's another question, and here's an option. What if we had church and no one came? So it's like, it's like an option. Without the Holy Spirit, the church shrivels up and dies. And we will reach a point where Ichabod is just written on a door. Ichabod meaning the Spirit has departed. And there's no reason for anyone to come here anymore. And what these past events of a few days have reminded me that I have been guilty of is thinking that, oh, if we would just do this or if we would just do that, little country churches like us would survive and thrive. Like if we just call a younger pastor or if we uh, do some program, just have more chili dinners. Now, by the way, I'm a fan of chili dinners, and I think we need to continue those. That's, that's a good thing for us to do, to fellowship together over food. But you know, all we need is the gospel. We don't need the internet, although we'll do our best to use it the best we can. We don't need all these meals. We don't need all these programs. We don't need young people or old people or anybody. We need everybody, but mostly we need Jesus and we need the spirit to move, to move among us. And so our future is no one shows up for worship or our future is we choose to be open to the Holy Spirit so that people come to see what God is doing here. And that brings us to Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus speaks to these churches in Asia. And one of those churches is a church in what is what we now call uh, Turkey. The, the church is called Laodicea. There's a city called Laodicea. And Jesus says to this church, he says, because you're lukewarm, I'm spitting you out of my mouth. And what he meant by that, and he says, I wish you were either hot or cold. You see, in, in those days, hot water was good for taking baths. Cold water, if you get a well deep enough, you could get cold water out of that well. It was good for drinking. But they had aqueducts, those kind of cement pottery-looking pipes that would deliver water above ground in the baking sun from some location to the city. By the time the water got to that city, it was kind of, it was pretty lukewarm. It was whatever the temperature of the day was and even warmer because of the rays of the sun. And it, it wasn't good. It wasn't hot enough to take a good bath in, and it wasn't cool enough to be a, a refreshing drink. And Jesus said, that's who you are. And I, I want you to be either hot or cold. I want you to be useful for the kingdom. 
And he, he says, you think you're rich, but you're not. And, and you're really poor and pitiable, pitiable and, and blind. And it's interesting either before or after these, we think after, sometime after this, there was an earthquake in Laodicea and the city was destroyed. And these people who were hearing God's word, Jesus' words read to them, had no idea what was coming. But Jesus said to them in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. You see, even today, when we look at the history of revival, often, after many of these revivals, there was a war. After the first great awakening with Jonathan Edwards, there was the American Revolution. After that second great awakening in the 1800s, there was the Civil War. After another great awakening with, uh, with Finney and others, there was uh, there were the war, World War I and World War II. Sometimes the spirit moves because he knows that evil is about to take prominence on the stage, on the center stage, and he's getting us ready. What is Jesus getting us ready for? For us to be ready, Jesus has to be in. And then this, this famous verse in verse 20, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, I grew up using that as, a, as an evangelistic verse. How do you win somebody to Jesus? You read this verse and say, open up the door of your heart and let Jesus in. And lots of people have been saved that way. But this verse is not to people who don't believe. This is a verse written to the church. This church in Laodicea is a church that has become so self-sufficient that the spirit has been quenched. And Jesus is saying, I'm on the outside. You, you put me on the outside somehow. Open up and let me back in. We don't know what happened. We don't know the rest of the story. We know this passage closes with he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the, to the churches. All we know is what we can do about this. And so here's where this message comes to a point with us. You and I, we're all here, and God's Spirit is here. But is it is it Jesus knocking on the door saying, open up and let us in? If it is, what do we do about it? And none of us are where we need to be with Jesus. All of us are working on this. And could it be that these events are happening these days because God is saying to his people, I want you to open up. I want you to have a closer relationship with me. I, I, I want to walk with you. I want to eat with you. I want to fellowship with you. Instead, you've squeezed me out. You've squeezed me to a, a tiny corner of your heart. You've even squeezed me out of your heart. So every day, what you're doing, it has nothing to do with what I want you to do with your life. You're leading your own life, your own way. And Jesus says, I want you to confess. I want you to repent. And that's another characteristic of movements of the Holy Spirit is when God's people acknowledge their own sin, confess it to Jesus, and sometimes confess it to each other. Confessing to be cold, confessing to put Jesus out, confessing to be man-fearing, to caring more about what people think than about what God thinks. Prideful and worried about personal appearance and what other people will say about us. Jesus says, I want you to confess that. I want you to repent. It's one thing to confess and say, oh, I feel badly. 
It's another thing to say, I will never do this again. It's another thing to go to someone that we've offended and say, I am so sorry. My actions have offended you, perhaps even hurt you. And I promise that I will never do it again. And here are the steps that I will take to make sure that I never do that to you again. So we confess and we repent, we repent, and then we declare our allegiance to Jesus. Do you know what the word, the scriptural word, the Greek word for believing, it means being faithful. It means Jesus is our Lord and we're with him wherever he goes, wherever he sends us, whatever he says, that's what we will do because we belong to him and we will be faithful. Like faithful in a marriage, we will be faithful in our relationship to him. So we confess, we repent, we declare our allegiance, and then we open up our hearts just to be vessels for his blessing. Maybe God will work among us like he's working out in uh, uh, in Kentucky or in Asbury, or, or maybe not, but that's okay. Whatever God does, we just want to be here, open vessels, cleansed from the inside out, having confessed our sins and saying, just saying, Lord, please don't pass us by. Use us, fill us in ways both great and small because we promise to obey your will. And so that's what it comes down to. God is moving. And isn't it refreshing to know that? With all the stuff we're hearing on the news and the, just the de- one depressing world event after another, God is reminding us He's still here. He's still alive. Time magazine and all these other print magazines, they're struggling to maintain readership, but God is very much working in the world and he wants to work in us. Are we ready to let him work in us in a mighty way? That's why we're coming to a time of invitation. So Perry and Mary, I want to ask you to make your way to the piano again as we get ready to sing a hymn of invitation. And in just a moment, I'll ask everyone in the room to stand as we come to that time that I mentioned earlier, but we, we will examine our hearts in the light of God's word. Where is Jesus right now? Is he, is he in our hearts individually and collectively? Or have we squeezed him out? Have we squeezed him to a corner? Have, is it as if he's on the outside looking in? So perhaps the decision that you need, might need to make today is just a, a repentance saying, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I realize today by the power of your Holy Spirit and the truth of your word that I pushed you out and that I'm not trying to live for you. I'm not being faithful to you. Maybe that's a commitment you need to make to rededicate your life, to come back to Jesus, open up your heart once again and let Jesus back into your heart. Now, you know, there's once saved all those things that we believe, but this is what Revelation is telling us to do. Are you willing to be obedient to as well? Make that decision today in a moment when we stand and sing, would you just... Promise God, Lord, I will do whatever you tell me to do. I will go wherever you tell me to go, and I will say whatever you tell me to say. You ready to make that? You ready to receive his blessing? You ready to be a vessel in his sight? Let me invite you to stand now as we get ready to sing hymn number 465. We'll sing three stanzas of this hymn, Unless the Spirit Moves. You know, unless God is working, I'll be standing down the front. If you feel a need to come and pray with me or kneel at the altar or just where you are, you don't have to be. You don't have to talk to me. You don't have to come. It's not a physical location. God is everywhere. God's spirit is here. Jesus is knocking at your door. 
what will be your response to him? Make that response now as we sing, please. But, uh, we're about to be dismissed before I let you go. I just had a thought just now is that one thing this revival has taught us is that it's not about great preaching and it's not about just, you know, big praise bands or choirs or anything like that. It's it's simple. It's simple messages. It's singing simple hymns out of a out of a hymn book and just opening up ourselves to God, opening up our hearts so that Jesus can come in. And I hope you'll take that with you wherever you go today. That revival will follow each and every one of us and God's spirit will work in our hearts in a very real and a very powerful way.